Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event. Are you ready? Let's get ready to ramp up your sales. And now the man you've been waiting for, he is the real thriller in Manila. The undisputed, undefeated, reigning, defending, pound for pound, heavyweight, John, the sales machine, Rankin! Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is a trailblazing entrepreneur and global business leader who started TransPerfect from an NYU dorm room, get this, and grew it into the world's largest language solutions company with revenues surpassing $1.1 billion. Her achievements spanned the globe with accolades like NYU Stern School of Business Charles Waldo Haskins Award, the American Heart Association's Health Equity Leadership and Women Changing the World Award. She is also recognized as one of Forbes' richest self-made women. She is the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Dream Big and Win. Ladies and gentlemen, over a billion dollars in sales. Let's welcome to the podcast, Liz Elting. Thank you so much, John. I'm so excited to be here. So thanks for that beautiful intro. So appreciate it. You deserve a billion dollar intro. It sounded like it the way you said it. I love how you said it. <laughs> well, you know, from a dorm room to building a billion dollar company, I first and foremost want to jump right in there, right? Because I want to understand what was your mindset and, and what was going on with your psychology when you came up with this solution, TransPerfect. Okay. Well, I was fortunate to work at another translation company after college. And I worked there for three years and I absolutely loved, loved, loved the industry. And I loved the people, but I thought it could be done better. I recognized issues. I saw a real gap between what our clients needed and what was available from our company and even from the industry. So I went back to school. I got my MBA from NYU. And then in 1992, decided I was going to start my company. And it was a tough decision because at the time, there were 10,000 other translation companies out there. So it, I was not the first person to have this idea, but they were tiny mom, mom and pop companies um, that were started and run by translators who were so busy translating, they couldn't scale their businesses. So I thought, okay, I, I may have studied four languages because I did and I loved languages, but I was never translator level. So I thought, okay, I will start this company and being a business person, be a pioneer in the industry and build something bigger and better than the others. And not that the other people in the industry weren't talented, but they were generally linguists. So they weren't busy scaling their company. So I thought, we will do this differently and better. And that was the idea behind starting TransPerfect. Yeah, you know, I, I always tell our listeners, there's two types of companies, the quick and the dead, especially in the entrepreneur world or in startups, right? If you wanna make the most money, you've gotta solve the biggest problem. And you identified that 
The problem was there's a lot of linguists out there, but they cannot scale and or allowing companies to scale globally. And that's something you did differently uh, with TransPerfect. I mean, it evolved into now. Uh, it's not just multiple language, but in actuality, it's even multiple culture and all the way down to, you know, packaging, the messaging. How did you go from, okay, I'm going to scale this model, but we're going to do it and we're going to go global. Right. So at the time when we started, as I said, there were other translation companies out there, but the one that I had worked at, which was actually the biggest at the time, um, still did a number of things wrong, in my opinion. It was about 90 people. It was the world's largest at the time, but I saw issues there. I thought they could not turn around projects quickly enough. A client would come to us and say, I have this 10 page document and I need it translated. How quickly can you do it? And I'd have to say that will take five days, but I knew the client needed it in one day or two days. And I didn't have the authority to do anything about it. Or, um, the company would occasionally make mistakes in a client's translation and I would have to charge them to fix the mistakes. And I thought, well, that's not service oriented. I, I don't like that. Or we couldn't give them any kind of deliverable. We could only offer word perfect and Microsoft word. Those were the softwares back then, but clients wanted other things. They wanted other deliverables. They even wanted other kinds of projects done. So I thought we need to be able to offer this. And finally, I thought we could have an office in every major city around the world. Clients are around the world. So why shouldn't our company have an office, a local presence around the world? So I saw all these opportunities to do things differently and better. And as a result, a company that we could really build and scale and grow to the, the world's largest. So that, that was the idea behind it. And then, you know, I can tell you how we went about it, but that was the reason I thought, wow, there's an opportunity. Clients needed a, a real one-stop shop for language solutions along the lines of a top tier investment bank or law firm. And it just wasn't out there. So that was You're where- You're a sales machine. <laughs> You're an absolute <laughs> sales machine. Because here's the thing, you know, I always say the greatest skill, and I've been doing this for 30 years, uh, building and scaling sales team is listening. And you were listening to the problems you were listening to what were your clients biggest struggles and you took it on your own even in an entity that wasn't going to entertain it and say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna serve these customers at the highest level um and you solved a bigger problem i mean steve jobs did it with the finger right and the iphone he, like, remember there was a stylus and he goes yeah uh we're done with this because you got one of these, right? Right. Well, what he, what's interesting about Steve Jobs is when he, it's the same idea. When he started, there were other smartphones out there and there were Blackberries, but he thought these aren't good enough. There, there's a lot more this phone, this iPhone can do. There's a lot more. And so that was his idea. And obviously he created, uh, you know, whatever, the biggest, the, the most important invention of all time, right? Waz is an absolute legend. I had the uh, I interviewed Waz, uh, Steve Wozniak, and he was he, he's just a legend. And that's their whole gig. Like there was already computers when they started Apple, but they knew that they could do it differently. They knew that they could do it better. They knew that they could solve a bigger problem. And 
bring computers to the masses. Exactly. No, and that's what they did. And that's why I always say, don't confuse being an entrepreneur with being an inventor. You do not need to invent something entirely new to be wildly successful. And of course, that's what they did. And that's that's what we were trying to do. And one of the big differentiators was spoiling the client with service and quality and innovation and anticipating their needs before they knew they had them. So that's what we set out to do. But related to sales, because I know that's that's really a big part of your focus or, or your focus is we didn't focus on raising money. We didn't do a business plan and go out there and get investors at all. I say now funding is vanity and profitable revenue is sanity. Sales, sales, sales. That was what we focused on from day one in the dorm room. Never raised any money. Did not raise any money. Uh, I will say eventually, I mean, this is all, it, we were in business. I was a part of my company for 26 years. And just in a nutshell, with the original company, we did not raise a penny. Then we started a second company in 1999, seven years after we started. And we got a few investors. That company was called translations.com. And my partner was running that company and I was running the original company. And we got a few investors for that company. But then we realized that caused more problems than, than without the investors. So we then bought those investors out and continued on. But what we focused on from day one was sales, sales, sales. And I talk about this in my book, but in the dorm room, it was all about goals revenue goals, and then the actions we needed to do each day to accomplish those goals. And it was, you know, uh, cold calling and sending out letters. Now it would be sending out emails. But the point is we were focused on sales, sales, sales. And then as soon as we could afford our first salesperson, bringing them in and so on. And, and it goes on. And my goal was really to build the largest sales organization in our industry, like in our, you know, within our company. And that's what we ultimately did. Um, we had over 600 full-time salespeople when, when I sold. Um, and, you know, it paid off having, having those people as part of our team. That was how we scaled the company. So sales, sales, sales. <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. You are a true badass. That is unbelievable. And never took a dime, right, of money. But so, but when you were going through all of this, what was the biggest challenge you faced, like, initially? The, the biggest problem that came out of nowhere? I want to know the biggest problem that potentially came out of nowhere, and how did you handle it? Well, let's see. In the early days, we worked so hard on bringing in revenue. And as you know, you might have to make thousands of connections for one project. And we did that. I mean, it was hundreds of letters each day, hundreds of phone calls. And then we got our first few projects. And then we spoiled the client with quality and service, and they would come back for a second project and a third project. So then we would, you know, we had that hockey stick growth where, wow, great. That first project turned into multiple projects. And even a, a million dollar relationship. So then we needed to bring in people to handle the work. And that was tough in the early days because we were a startup and this was before Google, it was before face Facebook, it was uh, before you know Amazon had been 
yeah, had we, Amazon was barely there. So the point was, we had trouble recruiting good people. We couldn't recruit them quickly enough. And then we asked them to work too many hours. So we learned, you know, we learned, we lost some people, some were the wrong people, some we just burnt out and we learned, we figured it out over time. But that was part, you know, those were some of the growing pains we experienced. But as far as the sales side, we brought in people as we could afford to bring them in. So we would bring in a person and train them. And we would say, okay, you need to sell $50,000 a month for three consecutive months. And if you do, then you can hire an assistant. And then if the two of you sell $120,000 a month for three consecutive months, you can bring in a third person and so on. So we were really creating these teams within our company. And we're hiring these people who are incredibly entrepreneurial and they wanted a 50 person team, a hundred person team. And then we compensated them that way so that if they weren't a very good salesperson, they, they weren't making much, they had a low draw, but if they were a great salesperson, they would get a high percentage of revenue. It was about 10%, which was a lot for our industry. And they would get that on that first project and that hundredth project and that thousandth project from the same client, which, you know, it was a commission that never sunsets, which as you know, is often not done in sales. So those were, you know, part of some of the things we did to really build, build the sales team. And of course, build the company. It's so funny because a, a lot of people teach sales. A lot of companies just don't understand what you understood. Right. And for me, that's a superpower, right? I, I wrote this memo and then turned it into a courseware. It's called the seven superpowers of scaling sales teams. Right. But, and the first superpower is awareness. A lot of people don't know how to push the psychological triggers of the entrepreneur or the salesperson. And if you want it to be consistent, and sustainable and scalable, you identified how to do it, right? With that sustainable uh, commission scheme. That's what we built into the sales machine. We built in rewards, recognition, competition, compensation. So people know what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And guess what? It worked. They do it. <laughs> it worked. Yes. No, I know the competition and transparency is is key. And it's great because they're competing against each other. They can see each other's numbers and they're they're competitive just inherently. So so it works very well. And the truth is if they're not competitive, if they don't want people to see their numbers, it's because they're not doing a good job. And then they don't belong at your company anyway. But I think the important thing is reward them with the compensation, with the people reporting to them and with the recognition. And it really does work. And and then you get to a point where they, they're making more money and they have more authority or, or power. I mean, they have a better position than they would elsewhere. So they're not going anywhere. And you just need to find those type of people, like-minded people who are hungry, who love the idea of building their own team, who have that ownership mentality. So important. Yeah, we were all born to win. <laughs> and in the absence of friendly competition, enter mediocrity into your company because that's what's going to become the bar, right? And there's only one way, thing you can do to consistently scale a company is, is raise the waterline for everybody. If you don't have that's somebody, right. not just setting goals, but setting records, breaking records. You're right. And that's why I think it's so important to have a goal like, okay, 
We, we are starting this company from an NYU business school dorm room, but our goal is to be the largest in the industry, to be a billion dollar company. Because then after you start doing well and you get to 20 million or 50 million in revenue, you realize you're not done. You're not there yet because you have bigger fish to fry. You have more goals to accomplish and your people understand that too. And that's why it's so important for the company to dream big and to have huge goals, like being the largest in the industry and the premier company in the industry. And then of course, for your people to be a part of those same goals and to be incentivized to help accomplish those goals and for them to be the want to be the best within the company. So yes, complacency is no good, not an option. And you can't have that in your company and it relates to the goals and then celebrating uh, the successes when you grow by 15 or 20% a year in the later years, in the early years, you're doubling in revenue. You can then, but then in the later years, you celebrate when you accomplish your 15 or 20% goals and then you shoot for more and then you shoot for more. <laughs> There you go. Dream big and win. Yeah. I say, say it, set it, do it, and then do it again. Meaning say what your goal is, you know, set the actions, do them, and then accomplish them and do them again. hundred thousand percent agree. You know, I use this life mastery playbook every day, every day, every day. And I always say success is every day, every day, every day. It's not about yesterday. It's not about sun someday. It's not about one day. It's about every single day successful people out there understand it's not just about the goals it's about your habits it's about your standard what are you doing every day because it doesn't matter about just setting goals 90 you know how many people set new year's resolutions they never achieve anything next year they're they're worse off i couldn't agree with you more and of course you know you need the goals but then more important I mean, along with the goals, you need to hold yourself accountable through your habits and your action for accomplishing the actions to make you make the goals. So yes, and it's funny, I literally just wrote an article that was published today for this publication I write for called Sway. And it's all about why people give up on their New Year's resolutions. And it's because they're too vague. They're, they don't say, okay, you know, they don't attach a number or a habit to them. And if they do, then it's much easier to hold themselves accountable for them. So absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. It's about our daily habits that allow us to accomplish our quantitative goals, which allows us to, to accomplish our big dream and win. Boy, did you dream big and win a billion dollar company uh, when there was 50 companies already out there doing it. Yeah, more. A lot of people, you know, they get caught up in their environment and their environment holds them back because they're all in a soup bowl, right? And they're all setting, instead of breaking records or setting records, they are thinking about what is everybody else doing instead of jumping out of that bowl and, and solving a bigger problem. The first seven years, you just drove this thing. How much revenue did you get to a year in the first seven years? to give people some perspective. We basically were doubling every year for, I'm trying to think, I have to think about that because it was, I was with the company 26 years and in the, the first, I'm trying, so I have to think about where we were after about seven. Um, let's see, after about five, we were at 10 million. So we were about at about between 30 and 40 million. Um, after about seven years. Wow, and that's that's fantastic. And who were some of the clients? 
because obviously now you're doing B2B. You're not just doing translations for the little guys. Now you're actually working with some of the big guys. Well, I will tell you, it was basically all B2B. And I think that's why we were able to grow. And I think that's a good thing for people to remember. In our case, we are shooting for the stars, you know, to create the world's largest, a billion dollar company. And we were focusing on, you know, as far as clients, Fortune 100 companies. So everyone from American Express to, I guess, back then, I mean, it was Exxon, it was... um, Citibank, it was Goldman Sachs, it was, I mean, every household name out there, it was Merck, Pfizer, um, all, the 200 large, largest law firms in the world we worked with. We worked Come with, basic, yeah, we basically worked with the largest firms in every industry because they all needed translation work. And then what happened, and I think this is an important point, we, we were selling them translation work initially in every language and whatever they needed done in every field, everything from legal to pharmaceutical to financial terminology. But then we also figured out what else they needed based on the types of projects they were given, giving us. So as we worked for the 200 largest law firms in the world, we realized they needed litigation support services. So we started a litigation support services division or we realized they needed staffing services. So we started a staffing services arm and and then other lines of business as well, Uh, virtual data rooms, content management solutions, and the list goes on, but it was based on what we saw our clients needed. So the idea was bring in a client, spoil them with quality and service, and make them a raving fan so that they tell everyone within their company how great you are, and then everybody outside their company, and then figure out what else they could need and, and start offering those services. And and so that is a lot of how we were able to grow as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about service. You know, I, I love Zig Ziglar. Oh, I used to read him. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, everybody talks about sales is sleazy, sales is this or that. No, you know, there's sleazy people out there, but sales is really service. When you come from service, you're never nervous. It's always about what can I do for this person, right? And a lot of people say, well, I, I'm not a salesperson. You're absolutely right. Do you not like helping people? I love that. And one of the things we learned, and this is what one of my mentors used to say, is he used to say, "Don't." he was one of the sales coaches we worked with. He was the major sales coach we work with, but he used to say, his name is Jack Daly. Yeah, I know Jack. You do? I I wanted him to be my mentor and he's just retired. Oh, he's my mentor. Oh my goodness. Oh, you should talk to Jack and say, Jack, reconsider. But I know Jack's went, he still got on a call with me and, you know, he he lost his wife and he's a legend. He's a legend. but can I just tell you, okay, so this is what happened. I was in 1995, I'd say about two and a half years after we had started our company, I went and heard him speak to what was called um, YEO, Young Entrepreneurs Organization. Now I think it's called EO. I think they've changed the name now. It was in 1995, and he was speaking to entrepreneurs about how to manage sales managers. And I went there and at the time we had only a handful of people at our company, probably 
for four people at our company, including me and my partner. And so there I was listening to him and I was thinking, I don't have a sales manager to manage. I don't have salespeople to manage. I'm the salesperson and, and my partner as well. But I listened to him and I loved him. And then after that, I brought him back to our company. We brought him back when we had a half a dozen salespeople, so maybe six salespeople. And we brought him back every year or two until we had over 600 salespeople and I sold. And he offered so much wonderful advice along the way. And one of the things he used to say is, don't show up and throw up. Instead, meet with your client and ask them questions and listen to their answers and then let them know how you can solve their problems. And so don't show up and throw up. Instead, ask questions and listen. And I love that. And we used to, that's really how we used to sell, consultative sales, as you're saying. Um, and uh, that was key. Another thing that we tried to do is really act like we worked for our client, like inside their office as part of their team. And as I said, we were dealing with the world's largest companies, but we would get to know them and make suggestions on what they should do if they were sending out an RFP or if they were about to get a new project, a new document, a new something translated, we would give them advice on how it should be written in English. So it was, I mean, we acted like we worked there for them. We were acted, we acted as if we were on the inside. And I think that served us well too. And I think that's a, a great approach. Really, that's a big part of how you spoil your clients. So a couple different things that I, I love about what you say and, and what you said. Uh, one is, you know, with Jack, you know, don't show up and throw up. Whenever I'm training salespeople, I, I literally walk in the room and the first thing I do is is right on the board, nobody cares. <laughs> right? And, and you know, it, it throws them off. And I'm like, so nobody nobody cares about your product. Nobody cares about your service. Nobody cares about your hair. Like, <laughs> let's just keep it real. It's all about what's in it for them. And, and so the first thing you need to do is listen. The companies say, well, how are you unlike everybody else? And we we're like, well, first of all, there's no one else that can automate the entire system of sales. You can buy a CRM and that's just a tool. You can buy a CRM with email marketing. That's a power tool. We've got a machine that's a total sales system and we will plant one of our reps in your office to do it with oh, you. That's amazing. That's what they want. That's what they need. No, you're amazing. <laughs> You've built a billion dollar company. So that just validates what we're doing works. Definitely. Yes, because it's how are you different? How are you better? And it's spoiling them with the service you just described. So there's no one else they would rather work with. And and yes, so that's perfect. Your your customized solution. And and then it's continually figuring out what else they could need. And as I said, anticipating their needs before they know they have them. And you know, that's what needs to be done as a company grows, right? Because you can't be stagnant. You need to keep innovating. And but that's wonderful because back to what you're doing, if you spoil them, as I said, they, they're your raving fans. They're telling their company, they're telling people outside their company. And then, you know, they may start with, in our case, it was $150 one page project. That multiple, that project turns into multiple projects and the multiple projects turns into millions of dollars. 
from that one client. So for so many reasons, that's the way to go. Did you ever experience hitting a plateau? And if you did, what did you do about it? Okay. I mean, I, before I started our company, I, the reason I started it is because, and I talk about this in my book in the first chapter that I was doing something that I was miserable at both because it was the wrong industry and the wrong company. I mean, but I didn't like finance. And then the culture of the company was so not for me. So my misery led me to start this company because I thought life is too short and we need to be happy. But then at TransPerfect, there were definitely a lot of roadblocks and, and mistakes along the way. I mentioned to you that, you know, as as we grew and scaled the business, we needed to bring in people quickly and we made mistakes and we burnt people out and we lost people. And that was hard. And we learned, we learned um, how to prevent that from happening, whether it was adding offices in other time zones so those people could cover for the people who needed to go home for the day or adding different shifts um, or just giving people comp days, comp time. But we also had issues like um, we, we made a deal with one client or we thought we made a deal. They said they were giving us $15 million worth of business which, I mean, that's a lot of business at any point in, in for a company, but certainly, but certainly in the early years, and we were so excited that we, and they were a major company, I mean, they were a Fortune 50 company, and that we ended up um, opening an office for them and hiring a bunch of people. This was in Florida, and I think it was in Orlando, because that's, it was near where they were, and then they pulled the plug on it, and we had spent a lot of money. And we learned from that, okay, you know, you, you need written contracts <laughs> with your clients. So they can't, they can't do that type of thing for you. But I mean, we certainly had times when we thought, how on earth are we going to make payroll in the early days? Absolutely. Yeah. I bootstrapped the sales machine and I got to tell you, there's been some uncomfortable moments. Really? Oh yeah, there are because you know, you, you can't guarantee you have the revenue. So sometimes you just have to live small. You have to pull out the, use, buy those ramen pride noodles, four for a dollar and eat them for days. And we did a lot of that in the early days. I think the first four or five years that we were in business, my partner and I were each taking $8,000 a year in, in salary in New York City. <laughs> New York City, that's a hard place to live for $8,000 a year. And, that, you know, so the point is, yeah, I, it was hard in the early days. And then there were other problems in the later days, like uh, keeping the employees motivated because the hours could be long uh, and, you know, retaining the best people. Um, I'm trying to think of other issues. I mean, I talk about partnership issues. I did end up having partnership issues with my partner. We were 50-50 owners. And for any listeners out there who have business partners, I, I say to people, if you do have partners, uh, make sure, if you can, that you are the decision maker. Because it's very hard when you're 50-50, there's no decision maker. You can be disagreeing every single day. And as the years went on, there were more and more disagreements and that tends to happen with partnerships. So that was one issue. And the other issue is we didn't have a proper share. We didn't have any shareholders agreement, not a proper shareholders agreement. We didn't have a shareholders agreement. I feel you. 
Yeah. I mean, the reason we didn't was because we started without money. I mean, we basically had, I had my life savings, which was a couple thousand dollars in the bank. My partner had $90,000 in business school debt, debt. So we were in the red, we were in the red. So we couldn't afford to hire an attorney. So we didn't draft a, and have a shareholders agreement between us. And instead we just started it as 50, 50 owners because we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And then we got engaged and we were fiancés and then we broke up. But by the time we broke up after five years, the company was at that point about a $5 million company. And as you know, the hardest million or 2 million or 5 million, I mean, sorry, the first, sorry, the first million or 2 million or 5 million is by far the hardest. So neither, (laughs) neither of us was going to leave. Yes. Right. Isn't it? So the bottom line is we broke up. We didn't have a shareholders agreement and the company was our baby and the hardest part was over. So we weren't going to split that baby. So we worked together (laughs) with no shareholders agreement. There's there's no splitting babies. There's no splitting babies. No, no, you can't split a baby. And it was our baby. But the bottom line is we worked together as 50-50 owners with no decision maker, no board, no shareholders agreement for 26 years. Wow. You know, I think we did just because, as I said, we were, the hardest part was over. And, you know, I knew it was, it was my passion and I suppose it was his too. And we weren't going to walk away, but it was difficult and it was rocky and we found ways to divide responsibilities, but ultimately that didn't work. And I mentioned this because I went through kind of a crazy situation where in order to finally either buy or sell, I had to litigate and I spent $50 million in legal fees to sell my half of the company. And I only tell people that because it wasn't just the money. It was also the heartache. It was incredibly difficult going through litigation with my business partner. It was about 20 different lawsuits. It was a very ugly litigation. And I say that because for people who are entrepreneurs, if you're, if you have partners, have a proper shareholders agreement. If you have partners, ideally make it so you're the decision maker, assuming you want to be, because it's hard when you're not. And what can you can go through ultimately if those things are not in place can be very difficult. So just a lesson learned. The $50 million lesson, ladies and gentlemen, that's actually priceless, Liz, priceless advice. Believe it or not, I know that sounds like an incredible, it's a lot of money, obviously, but it's also... Yet we had thousands of employees at that point, and they were in the middle of this whole thing. So it was very bad emotionally. I mean, I can only speak for myself. It was it was a horrible time, even aside from the money. I mean, the money is outrageous, right? But the the heartache. And so, I mean, I came out fine and life is good. And now I'm I have a wonderful life and I, you know, love it. But it's just a lesson learned from from what we did wrong that I, I love to share. Uh, I love your authenticity and honesty, your transparency. Like there's no greater superpower in the world than being authentic. And you mentioned something along the way, though, but to get a company to a billion dollars, I mean, less than 1% of companies in the history of the world ever make it to that pinnacle. Um, And it's rare air. It truly is rare air because, you know, like you said, 
it all looks good on the outside, right? A bill, one point one billion, but internally, meanwhile, you know, <laughs> you're struggling with this fight to get things done, right? And people don't understand it, right? The amount of of like mental and emotional capacity it takes to drive a ship that's got a you know thousands of them. You call them employees. I call them team members. I like. I don't think anybody likes to be called an employee. But I want to talk about culture because this is what a lot of people don't talk about. I mean, I've been inside Facebook campus. I was in. I had the opportunity to uh, go check it out, and and uh, you know, all the food is free, and there's snack bars and or snack stations at every like different pod of different people and there's all kinds of different restaurants and you can go and eat anywhere you want any kind of food and they just really take care of people but obviously they're a multi-billion dollar company i don't know if they've hit a trillion yet but uh and same you know you have this google but obviously for the little guys like i provide and we provide lunch but that's you know every day yeah every day wow that's amazing one thing is we we're downtown in a high rise building and in our office, there's not a lot of, there's not a, there's no snack bars or canteens or anything in the building. So the people would have to commute and I want to keep them there and I want them to be taken care of and be able to break bread together. So we didn't just make a small little uh, snack room. We built a break room, right? So that they, and they all, sometimes they'll even cook together and, eat it right and they assign a different person so i like that and because it creates community and when i talk about structure systems and strategies and i i coach other ceos right like kind of like what jack was doing with you i want to do it with technology like you did it right but i want to talk about how did you create a culture and or um, make sure you maintain a healthy culture to build a billion dollar business because for me that's priceless even when i interviewed steve wozniak i asked him what do you think the top three things are and he goes well number one you got to have a great product number two sales and marketing and number three is marketing but he called sales and marketing at the same time and he said but number three you got to have great people and you got to you got to make sure you take care of them um, and then, you know, when Steve Jobs and, and Waz went through their crisis, right, with the other CEO and full disclosures, you know, it's not a secret. Steve Jobs was a tyrant in the early days, would rip people's heads off, right? He was very adamant that they would achieve excellence, but he, he, he didn't have much empathy, right? And like Steve Wozniak, a lot of the people that got kicked out when they went public and everything, he took his own money and went and bought everybody a house. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I love that. And then he changed his name and became an elementary school teacher. Really? Yeah. I like, I'm in contact with Wozniak, right? So like I asked, you know, I interviewed him with a group of people and then I met him backstage and he goes, you know, you asked the smartest questions of anyone. Mm. I really love what you're doing with the sales machine. And I said, thanks, man. I'm just starting out. And, you know, I've been doing this for, for 25 years. And, but yet now I'm just starting out to automate things. And he gave me his card. It was a circuit board. <laughs> 
Wow. It's amazing what culture can do or great people can do. So what do you do and how do you maintain a great culture or how, what, how did you handle it? Because no problem, no business. <laughs> but internally, when that conflict is happening, how did you guys handle it and what kind of culture did you set up? Yes. And, you know, as far as people, that's the most important thing. And, and one of the things I say in my book is when, when we started the company, my, my thought was the big differentiator would be we would spoil the client with service and quality. And we did. And I talked about that. But what I learned over the years was we needed to spoil the team members. <laughs> I'll say, I like your terminology, team members with the best culture out there. And then they will spoil the clients with service and quality. And then the rest will take care of itself. The revenue and the profit comes from there. But I realized, I learned over time, it was all about the team members, the employees, the culture. And that's what I focused on doing in, you know, once we really had a company and lots of employees and I focused on creating the best culture in our, in our industry and the best culture in any industry, ideally. That was my goal. And so as far as how we did that, there were a whole bunch of ways. Um, we had over 100 offices. So often we had only a couple people in an office or a handful of people in an office. So what we did is we brought them together. We, on the sales team, we brought them together at least once a year from all over the world. We had a North American sales conference, and then we had an EMEA sales conference. And in that, they were able to network and learn, and we gave awards. And it was very wonderful. It was team building. So that was one thing we did We that, that was great. We also had a lot of events. Um, we had holiday parties and there we would give many, many awards. So lots of awards. And, and those were very inspiring to people. We also um, really empowered people. So we gave them a lot of responsibility and goals. And then assuming they, they made them, we paid them better than they would be paid elsewhere. And we promoted them. And in order to be promoted, often they needed to come up with an innovation. But if they did, they would be able to carry out what they had come up with and it really empowered them. And they, they loved that. I mean, we gave a lot of other perks as well. Like we had a wheel spin um, in our production divisions, a monthly wheel spin where they would win things like iPads or spa days or trips to Mexico. I mean, we did all kinds of things like that. Um, and then finally, one of the things I learned was it was all about communication. So I was big on these one-on-one -on -one meetings where I would bring people in for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with me. And, and then of course, they, they, as our company grew, they would, people would have, the managers would have one-on-one -on -one meetings with their people. And in those meetings, I would say to the person, so how are you? And often they'd say, oh, you know, fine, thanks. And they'd be like, no, how are you? Be like, oh, you know, everything's fine. And then maybe a third time, and then they would really say how they were feeling and they would open up and they would talk about whatever was on their mind personally. And we'd make sure we were dealing with that. And then I'd find out how they were doing from a business perspective. Like, did we have a situation where they were clear on what they needed to do to be promoted, to accomplish their goals at our company? Um, so 
who did that in the meeting or, you know, and so, and then we made sure in the initial meeting that was set forth, but then checking in on them in that meeting. And then another thing I asked them, and this was in these one-on-one -on -one meetings. And then it was also through um, employee surveys and exit interviews. My favorite question, which was, what would you do differently if you owned the company or you ran the company? And we, yeah, we got so many amazing ideas that way. And some of them were like new client offerings. Like when we started TransPerfect Litigation Support Services, it was because it was one of our employees' ideas. When we become we came ISO certified, it was because it was one of our employees' ideas. When we came up with TransPerfect Linguist Certification, the gold standard for certifying linguists in our industry, it was one of our employees' ideas. And then some of the ideas were internal systems that we should have in place. Some One of the ideas was, why do we have a an espresso machine on the 40th floor, but not on the 39th floor? We should have that. So somewhere as simple as that, but really asking them what they would do differently if they own the company. And that helped with the culture as well. I think that allowed to have a great culture. So we did a lot of things, um, you know, a, a long list of things, but it was all about culture. You know, another thing is when new employees came in, we, we celebrated, we would have, I would eat, well, sometimes it was, I would have a one-to-one -one lunch with them. And that was, you know, employees at all different levels. And I loved that, really got to know them. Sometimes we'd have a little party for them, a get together. And we would really focus on doing that when they came in as opposed to when they left our company, because at that point they're out the door. I mean, that's not the time. It's kind of silly to have a going away party, right? Instead, they should be having a welcome party or welcome lunch. So all kinds of things like that. Yeah, I read that in, in, in Giftology. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I changed my entire psychology about that because we used to do parties for people who who are leaving, but some, and, and we still do, but I mean, I've had people that were with me for 20 years. So for them, I throw a party because they're just retiring. That's a different gig, right? Yeah. And so now when you, when you join the company, um, we, we have a monitor up front in the lobby and it says, welcome, uh, on your first day. Um, and then we put balloons up and then we, we give them a welcome basket with a nice bottle of wine, some cheese, and, you know, just uh, some snacks and stuff. And uh, we we have a card, right? And the team signs it, uh, whatever, whatever the division is that the people are coming in from. And uh, people are blown away, like when they come in their first day. Um, no, Jack Daly taught me this. Jack, I read his book and Jack's like, it's so crazy. People celebrate these people who leave, celebrate yep. the people who join. I, That's I, right. learned it from Jack. I learned I learned it from Jack too, actually. You know, that was the, the great thing about Jack. He was a sales coach, but he also had a lot of great ideas that were not just related to sales like that one. And you're right. I learned that from him too. So Absolutely. But I love what you said you do. That's amazing. That's brilliant. A, a whole basket of those things. That's wonderful. That's from Jack. I got to <laughs> give credit to Jack, you know, because I've studied so many different people, literally, you know, and you hear a lot of people say, well, I read a thousand books. I don't care. What did you implement? I. That's right. And no, you're right. I mean, I think he said 
that first time I heard him speak, he said so many things that resonated with me. And of course, including that, <laughs> that example that you just said. So yes, and that was why we kept bringing him back. So wow, I love that you're, you're a fan as well. But you're right. What did you implement exactly? <laughs> you know, I want to talk about your book, Dream Big and Win. And I want an autographed copy. I don't want to just go to the bookstore. I want to get one directly from you. Okay. Right, because you have been absolutely amazing. Anybody listening to this podcast, you know, you you gave fifty thousand dollars in value, uh, you know, in less than an hour about how to handle partnerships, how to build culture, um, you know, taking your company from zero to one point one billion, how to serve your people, how to serve. Um, and be excellent at sales, how to actually translate that from your people to your clients. Like you're an amazing businesswoman. You are amazing. So tell me about the book and, you know, about what people can get out of this book, because if they get even a fraction compared to what you've delivered in an hour, that's mind blowing like mind blowing, like all these things can save people, not only tens of thousands of dollars, but a lot of stress, a lot of emotional, you know, trauma, because, you know, I always say business is not just blood, sweat and tears. It's also overcoming fears. So tell me about the book and, and how it can empower businesses all over the world. Sure. So I wrote the book because it really is the book I wished I had had when I was starting my company all those years ago. And then even along the way, because what I share in that book is lessons I learned over the years from building my company. And I tried to make it more like a, a beach read business book, a little more fun, a little more entertaining. Uh, it's got a lot of anecdotes from both my growing up and then my life overall. It's um, it's got some humor and it's a fast read. I think it reads more like fiction. It's my story, but with many, many business lessons, because I thought that's what I could have used. So I really hope it's helpful to people. I shared so many of the lessons I learned based on what I did right and the many things I did wrong. And I, yes, I would love for people to read it. You created a billion dollar company. You got this Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Dream Big and Win. What's next for you, Liz? So right now I have a foundation that I started uh, five years ago after I sold. And basically we focus on helping support and empower, empowering, sorry, we focus on supporting and empowering women and people from marginalized and diverse populations who just maybe didn't have all the advantages. I mean, what I had was a great education and great role models in my family. My family taught me to be curious, to be adventurous, to explore the world, and to work hard and to get a great education. And they paid for my great education. So I had a major head start. A lot of people don't have those things. So that's what we focus on with my foundation, because as we know, with when much has been given, you know, much is required. I mean, we want to give back, right? I, I want to give back. And, you know, as I I may have said, work today like no one else will, so you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. And that's what we try to do with the foundation, give back. And part of it is with 
donations and financial aid to to students, uh, investments or donations to entrepreneurs uh, and charities and all kinds of things. Everything from uh, education to heart disease to cancer to um, hunger to gun safety, all these things that are big issues, but, but all because they affect people and give them a fighting chance. So that's what I'm doing with the foundation. I'm on a number of boards. I'm doing all of that. And then as far as the book, yes, I wrote it and I'm out there sharing what's in the book and other lessons I've learned and meeting people and mentoring people. And that's my focus for the next year. And then after that, we'll see what's next. I'm going to continue with the foundation and the book. And I'm just having the best time because I'm meeting wonderful people like you, John, and sharing with them and learning from them. And I'm loving every minute of it. Yeah. Do you miss it? Do you miss the game? You know, I thought I was going to, and it was 26 years. But the great thing was this, the goal as I mentioned, was to build the world's largest, was to build a billion dollar company. And when I, I sold in 2018, at the end of 2017, we had become the largest in the industry. So after 25 and a half years, we got there. And so that I felt like, okay, that goal is accomplished. And I thought I would miss it, but I realized what I was doing there was wonderful, but it'd been the same company and a lot of the same people as far as the the senior level people and the same line of business. And now I'm learning so many new things and meeting so many wonderful people that, you know, I think this is great in a different way. And as I said, I'm loving every minute of it. So there, there are elements I miss a bit. I think what's most rewarding as an entrepreneur, and, and I'm sure you know this, is when you grow your company or when you're servicing clients. But in our case, it was more from growing our company bringing in employees or team members. I like your words better than mine, your terminology better than mine, but bringing in team members and right at, they were right out of school, usually right out of college. And they wanted an opportunity and saying to them, okay, well, you know, we're going to give you this project manager or this production assistant job or the sales assistant job. And then they do the right things. They learn, they grow. And after five years or 10 years, they're managing a hundred people or 200 people or whatever they're doing. And it's just so incredibly rewarding and I'm learning from them. And I loved, loved, loved that aspect of it. But, you know, as I said, because of what I'm doing now, there are other uh, benefits I'm getting that I, I didn't have time for then. So it's all good. It's all wonderful. Great. And you said you sit on boards, right? So and do mentoring. So tell me a little bit more about that. Well, as far as the boards that I'm on, they're mostly nonprofit boards. So uh, I, the American Heart Association, um, I'm on one of their boards. Um, Trinity College, where I went undergrad, I'm on their board and a number of committees and their entrepreneurship advisory board um, and some women's groups boards within Trinity and NYU Business School. I'm on their executive board. And then I'm also very involved in their accelerator program, which I think is the best accelerator program in the world. I am such a fan of their accelerator program. I, I'm, I fund it and I meet women entrepreneurs and I meet all the entrepreneurs, but we, we basically donate to our fund, the top women led companies each year. 
um, so I'm on that board. Um, something called Girls Learning Advanced Math. I'm on their board. I'm on Sandy Hook Promise. I don't know if you know that basically that shooting, the Sandy Hook shooting 11 years ago on that board. Wow, you're a busy woman. Those are some of the boards. But um, yeah. So there you have it, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to build a billion dollar company, Liz has done it from a dorm room in NYU because she dreamed big and she won. And that's what you can get from the book. Thank you so much, Liz, for jumping on the show. This is priceless for me. Oh, well, thanks so much. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining me today. And if you got value from this episode, do me a favor. Like, subscribe, and refer a friend. And if you want even more value, go to thesalesmachine.com. Click on resources, and there's tons of resources there to increase profits and drive performance in your business. Right on, right on, come on.